at Spring Meadows Presbyterian. I am Pastor Tim Posey, also known as Teaching Elder Tim Posey. And I am a substitute today. Dave McGuire was uh, slated to appear and start a series on ethics. And since I don't have any, I'm going to uh, do a... No, I do have ethics. But uh, I want to do something on conscience and the gospel. Conscience and the gospel. And it's not going to be Jiminy Crickets. Let your conscience be your guide. Because we all saw how that came out. But anyway, we're going to talk about learning how to take the gospel and do surgery, as it were, upon our consciences, because our consciences can cause us to feel so self-condemned and so imprisoned, especially the more enlightened our consciences become regarding what God requires of us. And so in order to do this, we're going to need uh, prayer. So let's pray. Father, we do pray that your Holy Spirit will help us today. Uh, we need eyes to see and ears to hear uh, what the Spirit is saying to the church. And so we pray the, that in your mercy and kindness and goodness and compassion, you would help us learn through the process that it will take, probably the rest of our lives, how to apply the balm and salve of the gospel upon our consciences. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. One of the key issues in learning uh, the dynamics of our relationship with God is learning how to apply the gospel of grace to our consciences. Sorry, I don't have an outline for you. I found out I was doing this yesterday afternoon, so I didn't put an outline together, but just follow and listen. Um, Martin Luther once wrote, there is no greater pain than the gnawing pangs of conscience. And if anyone would ever know that, it would be Martin Luther. You remember how he used to um, absolutely drive his confessor crazy because he would confess his sins, uh, and then on the way back to his cell as a monk, he would remember some more and go back, and he kept going back, and he kept going back. And uh, no wonder he, once he discovered the reality of justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, he said it was like being born again. It was being, like being let out of prison. This is why we make such strenuous efforts to justify ourselves. Uh, the adrenaline to our self-justification strategies comes from the condemnation of conscience. Um, so the key to this process learns in, lear in learning how to apply the grace of God to the functions of the conscience in much the same way as we apply it to the law of God. Just as the grace of God treats us as children of God, from rigid adherence to the external regulations of the law and from fears of condemnation uh, by God and punishment, it can also free us from the pressured attempts to live up to the impossible inner demands and from the fear of condemnation by our own consciences. Sometimes I want to tell myself and some of you, give yourself a break for a moment. If you're intensely preoccupied, 
about being holy, one of the first things that holiness requires is humility. And what is humility other than seeing the real you, not the fantasy you, but the real broken you, broken by the fall and the depths and how far it goes. It's not a pleasant picture. It produces almost a sense of despair. Uh, the gospel can also free us from the pressured attempts to live up to the impossible inner demands from the fear of condemnation by our own consciousness. And so what I want to do in the balance of our time is to develop the comparison between the impact of the grace of God upon these outer and inner legalistic lifestyles and demonstrates how the gospel itself, the gospel of justification, provides the paradigm for the resolution of the conflicts of conscience. Not only the gospel of justification, but also the present reality of Christ's high priesthood at the right hand of the Father can help deliver us from the pangs and pain of conscience. Hebrews 9, verses 9 and 10, and chapter 10, 1 through 3, tell us that there's something about the conscience that could never be pacified by the Old Testament sacrificial systems. How do we know that? How do we know that there's something about the conscience that could never be pacified by the Old Testament sacrificial systems? Because they had to repeat it, really? Like over and over and over. Because they never had that sense of rest that is available to us in the gospel. Proper eating, drinking, washing, fleshly ordinances could never satisfy the conscience. And even though the Old Testament sacrificial system pointed to and found its ultimate meaning in the person and work of Christ, it could never perfect the conscience. Neither could it eradicate the split in man between what he is and what he ought to or wants to be, nor could it eradicate the split in man between what he is and what he ought to be and what he wants to be or solve the tendency toward us for self-atonement. What is self-atonement? Well, I feel lousy. I feel guilty. I feel rotten. I'm full of self-condemnation. And so in order to deal with that, I try to do a good work of some kind to make myself feel better and hopefully win back the favor of God. Now, I know you never do that. But I have done that. So I'm preaching to myself. Even though the old covenant communicated forgiveness, the very fact that the repeated sacrifices had to be offered showed that there was an ongoing awareness of sin. And so by contrast, Christ accomplished what the law never could. When Christ came as a high priest of the... Uh, when Christ came as high priest, uh, the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more ta uh, perfect tabernacle that I'm reading from Hebrews 9 through 14. When Christ came as high priest of the good things that are already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not man-made, that is to say, not a part of creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and calves, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, having obtained eternal redemption. The blood of goats and bulls and ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremonially unclean sanctify them so that they are outwardly clean. 
How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from dead works so that we may serve the living God? And so there's something final and conclusive about the work of Christ. Christ purges our consciences from dead works. Well, what are dead works? Dead works are efforts we rely on to merit the grace of God and forgiveness. They are ways we attempt to pacify or mollify our consciences by works or even self-atonement. Christ's blood, in addition to freeing us from that need to satisfy the demands of a righteous God, also frees us from meeting the demands of our consciences. It can purge us from repeated efforts to satisfy our own demands and complete or perfect our consciences. Now, maybe a definition of conscience is now in order. Um, conscience is, in the broad sense, that includes our moral standards, our processes of moral evaluation, our accusing and excusing thoughts, and an imperative to live in accordance with the standards, our own standards, can never be satisfied or fully quieted by our good works or self-atonement, by our defenses or denials of our sinfulness, or even by our own attempted payments. Since the fall, the conscience has functioned as internal an internal law with its own courtroom, its own prosecuting attorneys and defense attorneys, its own judge, and its own sentences. And so an autonomous individual, especially Christian individuals, we select our standards, evaluate ourselves, bring ourselves to trial, judge ourselves, and even pass sentence upon ourselves. The process of self-administered justice can never fully quiet the conscience because it's based on our own efforts. Self-justification by works righteousness never touches or assuages the disordered conscience. That's why we cannot rely upon our conscience. When the fall occurred, we know that the effects of sin touched every dimension of man. And so that also includes the conscience. The conscience itself was disordered by the fall. And so as a result of that, we have to be, grow in our sanctification in our relation to our conscience. Uh, in reading um, Dane Ortland, he has a section in his book where he talks about despair, learning to come to despair. This is what he says. If you feel stuck or defeated by old sin patterns, leverage that despair into a healthy sense of self-utility that is the door through which you must pass if you're ever going to get any real spiritual traction. Let your emptiness humble you. Let it take you down. Not to stay there wallowing, but to shed the facile optimism that we so naturally believe about ourselves. We will come to the positive counterparts to this death in, uh, ahead, but we cannot circumvent this stage. It is the great prerequisite to everything else. 
The pattern of the Christian life is not a straight line up to resurrection, existence, but a curved down into death and thereby up into resurrection, existence. And one thing that means is that we go through life with an ever-deepening sense of how reprehensible in ourselves we really are. It was toward the end of his life that Paul identified himself as the most award-winning sinner he knew. That was toward the end of his life. He called himself what? The chief of sinners. Now, don't you think the Apostle Paul toward the end of his life was a pretty mature person? Uh, Ortland goes on to say, the godliest octogenarians, I guess that's 80-year-olds and above, I know are those who feel themselves to be more sinful now than at any other time before. They have known the pattern of healthy self-despair. Who of us cannot relate to the pastor and hymn writer John Newton who wrote in a letter in 1766 at age 51, the life of faith seems so simple and easy in theory that I can point it out to others in few words, but in practice it's very difficult and my advances are so slow that I hardly dare say I get forward at all. However, knowing that is the prerequisite for moving forward. And so, have you ever been brought to despair of what you can achieve in your sanctification? If not, have the courage to look at yourself squarely in the mirror. Repent. See your profound poverty. Ask the Lord to forgive your arrogance. As you descend down into death, into the knowledge of the futility of what interchange you can achieve by your own efforts, it is there, right there, in that dismay and emptiness, that God dwells. That's pretty powerful. It is there in that desert that he loves to cause the waters to flow and the trees to bloom. Your despair is all he needs to work with. Only acknowledge your emptiness and your guilt. What will ruin your growth is if you look the other way, if you deflect the searching gaze of purity himself, if you cover over your sinfulness and emptiness with smiles and jokes, and then go check your mutual funds again, holding at bay what you know in your deepest heart, you are wicked. If you plunge down only a little into self-despair, you arise only a little into joyous growth in Christ. The index of the soundness of a man's faith, so writes J.I. Packer, is the genuineness of the self-despair from where it springs, or from which it springs. Let me read that again. Packer says a lot in few words. The index of the soundness of a man's faith in Christ, how do we measure sound faith, is the genuineness of the self-despair from which it springs. Don't just admit your condition is desperately ruinous. Let yourself feel it. Ponder unhurriedly how vile left to yourself you are. Well, come to church and feel happy today, right? <laughs> But this is the road you take to gain depth. John Newton wrote another hymn, and this is, I'll move on with our lesson after I read this. And the name of the hymn is written in 1779. It's called, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. You might be familiar with this. It starts like this. I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, 
might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power, subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Across all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my gourds and laid me low. I don't know what blasting his gourds are. I have a suspicion, but I don't know. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied, I answer prayers for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayest find thy all in me. And so this idea of, you know, your church talks too much about sin. I had, a, I had an elder in a church in Louisiana, and he was, he was a good man. He was a godly man, and I admired and respected him. But he asked me to go for a walk on the lakefront, and I figured it wasn't uh, a social occasion. Because <laughs> who wants to walk with their pastor on the lakefront? Walk with your wife or your children, but I did. And he had me sit down on the bench, and he looked at me. He said, you know what? He said, I love you. Our family loves you. You're a great preacher. And I know, okay, he's greasing the knife. Now he's going to thrust it. And he said, but you talk about sin too much. And he was, he was sort of a, a really optimistic kind of person. And he just told me it was a downer for him. And I said, well, you either I'm not communicating it well or you're not misunderstanding. But that's pretty much what the Bible's about. <laughs> I mean, you read it from cover to cover. You can't get away from the fact that we're in deep trouble because of our sin and we need a redeemer. And I said, I'll try to emphasize more uh, the deliverance from sin. But I think, and I don't know this for sure, but I always want to justify myself especially when it comes to my calling. I think in some respects for him, he didn't want to see it. He didn't want to feel it. He didn't want to know it. Because it's ugly. It is so ugly. And you'll never really have a thriving, flourishing relationship with Christ until you learn how to die. And dying spiritually is not pleasant. It's death. And it hurts. But you'll never experience resurrection power and the reality of the gospel's saving work as long as we're hiding from ourselves or attempting to paint ourselves with a more flattering brush. <laughs> and the Bible doesn't play around with that stuff. It never flatters human nature. But what we cannot do through self-effort, God has done through Christ's substitutionary life and death, since Christ has paid the penalty for our sins and given us his record of obedience to the law, we are now, once and forever, righteous 
in the sight of God. We live under his favor. We forever live and stand under his favor. Uh, the jury's not out. <laughs> the jury's already passed the verdict, and we are justified. We can now allow the Word of God and the Spirit of God and the people of God to bring us conviction and show us our sin. When Satan utilizes the processes of conscience to accuse us, say with Paul, who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. And when we are prone to punish ourselves or to condemn ourselves for our failures, we must remember that we have no right or reason to do so, for it is Christ who died, yes, rather was raised, who's at the right hand of God interceding for us. In this way, the functions of our conscience undergo a radical transformation. They move away from self-atonement to Christ's atonement, and in doing so, they open us up to a love-oriented motivation of grace rather than the fear, guilt, and pride motivation of attempting to keep God's law to win his favor and establish a relationship with him. And so that's the answer, but it's learning how to live and apply that answer to our consciences. Uh, just as you undergo a radical change that acknowledges our total inability to earn God's favor and acceptance through our work, so our search for inner acceptance through the work of conscience must also be abandoned. You can still be tyrannized by your conscience, especially if you have a sensitive conscience. Now, some people seem to be seared <laughs> or just able to compartmentalize and not be bothered by their consciences, and some people are oversensitized to it, but either way is misery, and either way, uh, we can regain our inner integrity we lost in Adam's fall through Christ and Christ alone. It is only through his redemption that the entire enterprise of self-judgment and punishment can be given up and our integrity can be reestablished. We no longer have to try to be what we cannot be. Somebody asked me one time if I was a good Christian. And I said, well, I'm a Christian. I don't know how good at it I am, but I'm a Christian. And he's at work. Uh, but the, the truth is, Christ has made us acceptable to God. It is finished. John Calvin said the following. Now, if we ask in what way the conscience can be made quiet before God, we shall find the only way to be, the, uh, to be that unmerited righteousness be conferred upon us as a gift of God. Let us ever bear in mind Solomon's question, Who will say, I have made my heart clean, I am pure from my sin? Let even the most perfect man descend into his conscience and call his deeds to account. What then will be the outcome for him? Will he sweetly rest if things were well composed between him and God and not rather be torn to dire torments? Since he's, if he be judged by works, he will fill grounds for condemnation within himself. The conscience, it looks to God, must either have sure peace with his judgment or be besieged with the terrors of hell. So Calvin even remarked on things. So part of our sanctification as believers doesn't merely deal with our bondage, 
to sin expressed most clearly in attempting to maintain a relationship with God through performance of any kind, works of the law or even your own standards. But it also has to do with our conscience. And see, that's, that's the route to joy. The route to joy is not to do everything right and then feel good about yourself. The route to joy is what? Believing what we're talking about today. Applying that to your own heart and soul. That is truly the route to joy. As Helmut Thielke, and I know all of you know Helmut Thielke, right? He's a conservative Lutheran theologian. He said this, The conscience needs to die to its old way of functioning. Unrest of conscience cannot simply be done away with by the offer of forgiveness. It has to be pacified. Conscience must learn to understand itself in a whole new way. It must die as it were. You know a man's a theologian if he says as it were. That sounds so profound. Like the natural, I like to say it too. Like the natural man himself, the unmortified conscience can only stand uncomprehending before the proffered forgiveness Indeed, it senses this very offer a threat which runs counter to its own instinct for self-preservation. Therefore, if conscience is to be subject itself to the miracle of the remission of sins, it can only do so by declaring the dialogue between the accusing and excusing thoughts, Romans 2.15, to be unessential and indeed invalid. It can do so only by leaving and closing and locking this whole courtroom, by forsaking its own fatherland, its own true home, and by going out into a foreign country, in short, by letting go altogether of what it once was. So we've got to die to our, the way our conscience functions under sin. And so I hope you're following with me. I know some of this is a little wordy and heavy and... But let us forge ahead with vigor. To resolve the problems of guilt and conscience, we must acknowledge that the entire process of passing judgment on ourselves in order to make atonement through self-inflicted feelings of guilt or excuse ourselves by various self-efforts or defenses must come to an end. This system is a consequence of the fall and has no place in the life of the believer. The effort, this effort to achieve peace in our own way is actually rebellion against God and his way of sanctification. All these attempts at self-justification are expression of fallen humanity's hostility toward God. It is Christ who has paid and the Christian's only hope for peace of conscience is to give up or die to the strategies of self-justification through self-atonement answering to our conscience. Your conscience is never going to give you a passing grade. It won't. That's why you've got to look outside of you. You can't look within yourself and find the strength. You've got to look outside of yourself and see who Christ is and what he's done for you. You know, um, to say that we should be addicted to the gospel is really an understatement. <laughs> uh, we're so addicted to law and so addicted to sin and so addicted to so many other things. That's why we as believers shouldn't have any problem helping people who are struggling with addiction because we know about addiction, don't we? 
We know about addiction to idols. We know about our sinfulness. And while ours may not have taken as an extreme or outward condition that affects everyone we know, still subtly it eats away at us. And so the parallel, and this is the next to the last paragraph, so hang on. The parallel between law and conscience is significant. Just as the law brought condemnation, so does, so does your conscience not yet free through Christ. Just as Christ is the end of the law as a means of establishing a relationship with God, so faith in Christ leads to the end of conscience as a means of relating to myself. Just as the law is fulfilled by faith, so the con conscience is quieted by faith, so that it needs to make no more self-punishing sacrifices. Just as the sins of the believer freed from the law are no longer counted for condemnation, so the believer whose conscience is healed by faith no longer condemns himself. And just as grace makes the law clear to us and stimulates us to fulfill it in love, so grace satisfies our consciences through Christ's blood and creates a desire to be fruitful through love. That's why understanding the gospel with depth is so healing for you and it's so freeing for you because we don't have to pretend anymore and I know that's threatening to some of us uh, it was really threatening to me when I first began to look at this stuff and I thought well that's just morbid introspection you know you don't need to get caught up in all of that and uh, well it is not really morbid introspection it is healthy in introspection as long as it takes you away from yourself to fix it and totally turns you toward Christ. Final paragraph. In conclusion, there are many relational implications for the conscience that has been liberated through free justification. We are no longer separated from God but united with him as adopted children. If I sin and fail, what does God think of me? Does he go, you know that Tim Posey? I've about had it with him. You know that Tim Posey? He always messes up. He always fails. He runs the ball 99 yards and fumbles it on the one. Uh, he just uh, can't count on him for anything. Uh, he's such a loser. No. Just as the father in the parable of the prodigal son ran to his son, fell upon his neck, covered and smothered him with kisses, that's what God does when we run to him with our sin. You said, what about discipline? What about chast chastening? Well, that flows from the loving heart of God to where he provides boundaries so we won't utterly destroy ourselves. But it doesn't stop what I'm telling you. You are free to go before him as you are. No longer do we need to be separated from God, but we're united with him as adopted children. No longer do we need to be separated from one another because of our sins and their sins are paid for. We can accept one another without blame, judgment, and condemnation. We also can accept ourselves because we're free to acknowledge our own inability to close the gap between who we are and who we should be and allow Christ to accomplish that. 
See, grace is more than making up the difference between who you are, who you are or who you want to be and who you really are. Grace deals with all of it. And we, by accepting the fact that Christ has made us acceptable, his work becomes our center and allows us to give up unrealistic goals, our efforts at self-atonement through guilt feelings, if I can just feel bad enough, I can remember as a young Christian praying and I would be confessing my sins because somebody told me I needed to do it. And I'd be confessing my sins and I felt like, Lord, I know you can see through me because <laughs> I have the nature of a con man as all of the rest of us in the room do. But I was trying to impress him with how sorry I was. And it was almost as if the Holy Spirit said, yeah, we already know you're sorry meaning different than sorry you're a sorry person <laughs> but I would try so hard to work up enough um, feelings of condemnation to impress him that he ought to forgive me now what is that that's a self-atonement that's works righteousness and now I just go well I know I should feel awful about this I don't feel anything this is, this is terrible <laughs> And, uh, you know, sometimes, other times it really hits home and brings you to your knees. But the gospel is just such a healer. Um, if we truly allow the reality of imputed righteousness to soak into our lives, we can give up the whole process of self-accusation, self-justification, and self-atonement when we recognize Christ is our righteousness. He doesn't make up for the righteousness I have but lack. He is my total righteousness. There's not one single thing I've ever done that isn't stained or tainted with sin, or you either. And so the wonderful thing is, I have his record. I have his robe of righteousness covering my own nakedness. It isn't that God adds Christ to what I've done and somehow we pass. No. Christ is a substitute. He substituted not only for my, uh, his death for mine, but his life for mine. And because of that, I can say, Lord, even though I stumble daily, even though I'm beginning to see how deep it goes, although Martin Luther said if you ever saw all of your sin all at once, you would most surely die. I agree with him about that. But then you learn to go, but I'm looking at myself and how I stand before you apart from Christ, and I need to look at how I stand before you united in Christ. That is so freeing. It lifts the burden. All right, we're almost through. By accepting, all right. If we truly allow the reality of imputed righteousness to soak into our lives, not imparted righteousness within us, but imputed righteousness credited to us that was accomplished not by us, but by someone else, Christ himself. Once we learn to live out of that, then uh, we experience a great sense of relief because we can give up our struggles to do well and make ourselves acceptable. Now, a lot of people think Tim, if you really preach that and teach that, you're taking away every motivation a preacher's got to get people to behave, which is the Roman Catholic reaction to the doctrine of justification by grace alone, in Christ alone, through faith alone, because they always say what? If you teach grace to people, they'll become antinomian, they'll go wild, and some people do. 
that don't get it. But at the same time, they say you're taking away every possible handle or connection I can to, to make people live righteously. And the fact is, when you say that, you're saying the only thing that drives people in reality to want to be holy is guilt, more guilt, self-condemnation, rejection, fear of punishment, fear of judgment. And if those are the only motives you've got, then why did Jesus need to come for you? As Paul says in Galatians, Christ means nothing to you if you're trying to be justified by works. And so, this brings a radical shift in our attitude toward God, self, and others. Living in this awareness that we're forgiven and righteous, we can move away from a works-oriented lifestyle, the repression and denials prompted by guilt, and the self-condemnations prompted by conscience. We can move from guilt to godly sorrow, move out of ourselves and love to our neighbor. The gospel truly liberates us from the tyranny of our consciences. And so in closing, what I would say is understanding this information gives me... I used to be, I used to be very uncomfortable around unbelievers because I, all I was doing was looking at them going, yeah, I see your sin, I see your sin. You didn't say that right, you didn't do that right. You know, just a big, fat, ugly judge, you know, wearing the black robes in the courtroom. So condemning of others, so judgmental toward other people who weren't living up and doing what is right. And now I realize how stupid and sinful that attitude was. I once told my cousin when I was a new Christian, he was the cousin I idolized growing up. We didn't have a lot of money growing up, so I was the one who inherited his hand-me-down clothing. And he was my favorite cousin of all time. But uh, he started talking to me, and he said, I hear you became a Christian. I said, that's right. And he said, uh, what are you, stupid? Or something like that. It was some disparaging comment. And I said, you better watch out. I'll call down the fire from heaven to consume you at this very moment. <laughs> I think that might be the last thing I ever said to him. I don't know. Maybe I need to talk to him again. But what the gospel has done is freed me from having to do all that to really reach out of myself and talk to and understand unbelievers because I remember what it's like to be one and to love on them even though I don't approve of a lot of things they say and do but the gospel frees you to be a fully flourishing human being in the image of God being restored day by day all right that's it any questions yeah Mark My question is, I see a tension between keeping God's laws as a means for self-atonement or keeping God's law as a sense of gratitude, as the third use of the law says. And, you know, if you ever study the Heidelberg Catechism, which I just happen to be doing right now, it's three sections, guilt, grace, and gratitude. Uh -huh. And the whole gratitude part is on God's law. So I'm just... Well, the gratitude. How do, we, how do we do that? Where do you get so your gratitude? Where do you get gratitude from? Of course, from the gospel. Okay. 
then the, gra- the gospel frees you to see the law not as a burdensome thing that condemns me because I can't do it. It frees me and causes me to delight in the law of God and long to believe it, knowing at the same time I will never live up to it, but I have the ability to return to the Lord, receive cleansing, repent, and continue. I now love the Lord, uh, the law of the Lord far more than I ever did as an unbeliever or even as a new Christian. So striving saw, for obedience is okay. Oh, it, it what, will in flow. Light of the gospel. There's a sense in which it will flow spontaneously from doing what I just said this morning. Okay, good. On the other hand, as Luther and Calvin were, uh, I think someone was saying that Luther said the law, he spoke so pejoratively of the law, spoke against it so much that Calvin, on the other hand, said we wouldn't need the law if we didn't still have sin. And so the law is a goad. On the one hand, there's a spine, and it's a tension, you're right. Uh, That's because truth in the Bible always creates tension within us because we can't comprehend it. It's just too big. It's God. We're trying to figure out and live with here but you're right I I fully affirm you know I do and embrace the third use of the law and I think that's the most liberating uh, way to live but a lot of people skip this step a lot of Christians go okay I'm saved now just give me the manual and let me go live and we got to learn not to grovel but to despair of ourselves and that act of despair leads to relaxation that impels you toward the Lord and a desire to please him, not to get anything out of him, but to please him because you love him because of the way he loves you. Good question, though. Any others? You got one, Greg? (laughs) John Moe over here. Okay, this might be kind of funny, but um, how soon after you sin with someone or at work and you say, uh, you can say, uh, there is therefore now no condemnation uh, for those who are in Christ Jesus. And how, then they. You sin they, against somebody at work? Well, like I make a mistake at work and they're mad at me and I say, there's therefore now. No, that's between you and the Lord with them. You make restitution. You go. You own it. You confess it. And you apologize or ask forgiveness for it and move on. There's a a Godward aspect to our relationship and then there's a horizontal relationship that we have with other people. And if I have done something offensive, it's upon me to go and resolve that. And the Lord doesn't condemn me for it, but that person probably does. Okay. Yeah, that's just keeping short accounts with others and realizing that when we've offended a person, it is our responsibility to go to that person and let them know that I know what I did or said offended you uh, or I, I did fulfill the responsibilities that you righteously expect and I'm wrong. Then you say the hardest seven words there is to say please forgive me I was so wrong 
Yeah, I, I saw you counting. <laughs> Any other questions? Well, good. Thanks for coming to Sunday School. Next week we should have uh, Dave McGuire here, I think. So let's quit and prepare for worship. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. Pray that this message will find uh, a place in our hearts to help us because we so need help. Every one of us are in need of professional help, and there is no better professional help than you and the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. And we pray you would bring good fruit forth in us as we spend this time together. In Jesus' name, amen.